Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Passage, we're just going to get straight to it. We're in the book of Matthew, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. We find ourselves in chapter 9, beginning of chapter 9 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles, take them out. Please stand. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screens. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Matthew 9. Getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, and he came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. Seeing their faith... Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Pick up, get up. Pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and its power. Father, we thank you that the power of Christ in his bodily, earthly form when he was here, um, is with us today. We thank you that his words that are uttered from his mouth are still with us in the form of your Holy Scripture today. And Father, may we listen to your word and apply it to our lives as if he were speaking it to us today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we looked at Jesus' command over the powers of darkness. And we observed how we cast out demons from the men who were living among the tombs. And we compared the demoniacs, those two men that were afflicted with demons, to the townspeople who lived nearby, those that had, had tried to chain them and shackle them and were unsuccessful. And in the end, we made the conclusion that the fate of the townspeople was infinitely more tragic and sad than those that were demon-possessed because the two men went away free, free from chains, free from demon possession, and free from sin, chaining their hearts. The townspeople did not. Throughout the Gospels, much of Jesus' teaching is done to us in the form of comparison, contrast, one thing to another. And so we see that he talks about the rich man and the poor man, the rich man and Lazarus. We see that Jesus talks about the inside and the outside of the cup, the sheep and the wolves, the shepherd versus the hired hand, the light versus the darkness. Today is no exception to that pattern. In our passage, Matthew 9, uh, is recorded for us an account of a paralytic and his friends and their display of faith among a crowd of people, we're told they're scribes and onlookers who are intrigued about Jesus and his teaching And we're told we'll glorify God and are awestruck, but eventually they will doubt. In this passage, 
we learn this morning about the nature of faith and friendship. So we're going to look at the passage together this morning. Verse 1, we're told, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. That's an interesting thought. Maybe we don't think about the fact that Jesus actually did have a home city. We don't know particularly whether he had a house. We aren't told that, but we do know that, uh, that he had a home city. In the book of Mark, we're told that this city was Capernaum. And um, whether he was staying in a place that he owned or whether he was staying with friends that let him dwell there, we don't know. But Jesus has a home city and he's home. And the sad thing is, is if you remember, that this is likely part of the, the, the people that will ultimately reject him and give no profit honor in their hometown. But Jesus is back in his home city and they bring to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. Who is the they referring to? Well, Matthew's account of all the Gospels is the shortest, um, but it's friends of this paralytic. Paralytic, a cripple who couldn't walk. We're starting to see some contrasts here in this chapter. Jesus is sitting amongst scribes when this man is brought to them. And this man isn't just simply a commoner. He's not just simply an onlooker. He's a, he's a paralytic. He's somebody who was lame. He couldn't walk. We don't know the extent of his disability. But he's not, able to, he's not able to move himself. And one of the things we need to remember is that this sort of person was looked at as being unclean or looked down upon in such a way that they, they placed over top of these sorts of conditions some sort of sin. Uh, this isn't new. If you think back to the very early parts of Scripture, we've, we've already alluded to the story of Job a couple times over the last month. Um, Job is a man who's afflicted by Satan. God is using Satan's afflictions to strengthen Job and to bring him closer to himself. We think about Job receiving afflictions from, from the hand of Satan to tempt him. And Job has these friends that come and sit in silence for a long time, which is a comfort. And then they open their mouths and the comfort stops. They open their mouths and they start afflicting Job by saying, are you sure that you haven't done something wrong? You had to have done something wrong. There has to be something under the surface, something heinous that God is afflicting you because of. And of course, if we read to the end of Job, we know that Job is a sinner, but the reason that he was being afflicted wasn't because he had committed some specific offense against God. God was bringing him closer through this. And so, from early on in Scripture, we see that there's this mentality that those who are suffering under a condition are being punished. Uh, this, this sort of belief is alive and well in the New Testament as well. Uh, we see particular tragedy and there's an assumption of specific sin or sins that are attached to it. This is a, uh, a notion that Christ dispels or seeks to dispel periodically throughout his ministry. Um, one such time is in Mark when the disciples see a cripple and they see a blind man rather and his disciples ask him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind and Jesus responds to even the disciples even the 12 that were closest to him and he says it was neither for this man's sin or because of his parents sin but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him all this to say that these men there's a group of men who's bringing a paralytic a crippled man uh, before Jesus, before the scribes. And this man is their friend. They love this guy. They care about him. They aren't embarrassed 
about his disability. They aren't embarrassed by him. They haven't shunned him by assuming the worst. They are desirous to help. They hear that Jesus is in town. They run and grab their friend, and they bring him to them. Now we come to the verse at the heart of our passage. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. This verse is striking for a number of reasons. There's a cause and effect at play here. We see that seeing this, Jesus decided to do that. So we're going to to break down this verse together. First, we're told that Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. It doesn't say that he discerned their faith. Discernment is the ability to see something that's not obvious, that's not clear. When life deals you a partial deck of cards, discernment is the ability to take those and to make good use of them. It doesn't say that Jesus sensed their faith. He saw their faith. And of course, sight, if you're going to be critical, sight is a sense, not denying that. But the point of the text is that the faith of those who is com- the faith of the men that are coming to Jesus is obvious. It doesn't have to be discerned. Jesus doesn't have any supernatural premonitions of what's going on here. He doesn't use divine telepathy to sort of read between the lines and and see their hearts. It's it's obvious. Their faith is observable. It's seen. And these friends believe that Jesus was able to do something to help their friend. That belief motivated them to action. They went over. They got their friend. They hauled him across Capernaum. And they brought him to the house that Jesus was teaching at. And I was thinking about carrying somebody on, on your shoulders. And um, I was thinking this, this story probably resonates with you and I, Matt. Matt Gherkin, the young man, the man who plays bass for us almost every Sunday. Um, a few years ago, we, we took a trip together. I was at the time leading junior high and senior high. And one of the things that we would do is we would pair a couple of upper, upperclassmen with a couple of freshmen. And we would take a a strenuous hike of some kind. And the first year we ever did this, we went down to a place called Panthertown Valley, South Carolina, and it was going to be a backpacking expedition. Um, We got down there, and it was evening time. We wanted to hike a few miles in to establish a base camp, so technically it might not have been a backpacking trip, but we were hiking with backpacks and stuff in, and then we were going to do some long trips uh, throughout the next couple of days. And we... We arrived there in the evening, and we, we made out because we wanted to get to our campsite before dark. And one of the tragic things is that, as I mentioned, this was our very first trip, and we did not understand how to backpack, did we, Matt? No. We had, have you ever seen those, uh, those humongous coolers, you know, that can hold, like, everything? For, we had a huge cooler filled with food. Aaliyah had had prepared wonderfully for us. We had all sorts of meat we were going to grill and ice and, every, and we had waterproof bags that we were going to hang to keep all our dry goods from the bears. And then we had our you know, traditional backpacks and sleeping bags. We even had a 24-inch cast iron skillet. It's like never again, never again. And so we had had this brilliant idea to take all of this stuff and mount it, suspend it from two eight-foot two-by-fours. So we have this cooler hanging 
from two-by-fours. We've got backpacks hanging from two-by-fours, sleeping bags. We've got a cast-iron skillet on top of the cooler. And Matt and I are hiking with a couple of others who are carrying other things. I don't remember. All I remember is it was terrible. It was horrible. It was a terrible experience, and we'll remember it forever. We got down to the, we got down to the, the place we were wanting to stay, and I just remember the sensation that we both felt like we had jumped in a pool. We were that wet. Everything was just clinging to our bodies, and we laid down our sleeping bags and fell asleep like that. It was the most disgusting morning to wake up to ever. I thought of that story because whereas we were displaying foolishness and carrying all that stuff, uh, the guys in our passage are displaying faith by them hauling some guy up on their shoulders and walking who knows how far to be with Jesus. Their faith is seen in the very act of them bringing their need before him. But when they arrive, they're, when they arrive, they're met with another challenge. Jesus is inside and we need to think about this as it's relayed to us. He's inside with all the important people. He's inside with all the scribes. He's inside with all of those that looked at the Old Testament law and discerned it and made judgments and, and taught the, the commoners. He's inaccessible, too. We know that the room was filled. The doorway was filled. They were spilling out onto the lawn. There was, there was no way to enter the house. And so these guys did the best they could. Maybe next time they wouldn't hit Jesus at such a popular time. But no, absolutely not. These guys are not taking no for an answer. They are desperate for their friend's healing, and they can't go near to Jesus by the traditional route. So if you remember from some of the other accounts, they carry him up onto the roof, and they rip a hole big enough for this man to be lowered down through. And again, I just want to point out these details as we talk about them because it's important that we not just sort of flow past these things without recognizing the implications of what actually is being recounted. When I was young, I'd look at something like this, and I, I literally thought that back in this time, you know, roofs were basically constructed out of Lego blocks, you know, and they just popped off a tile and lowered the guy down, and there was no rough edges, and, and that's just not true. That's not true. To think about this is to, to, to think this way about stories like this, where they just you know, and it's a perfect square, and they just lower them down, and there's no struggle. It's to rob the story of all of the audacity that faith puts in the heart of a man. We can't do that. Jesus saw their faith precisely in the fact that they had to tear off the equivalent of shingles and plywood and insulation and drywall. And now, houses were made differently at the time. They were flat roofs, and they had parapets. But seriously, you have to, you have to knock a hole through a roof Stuff probably fell on Jesus and the people below as they were digging. You got to, you just, we can't ignore these sorts of realities. Not only did their faith cause them to come to the house, their faith caused them to see that the door was blocked, so they were going to have to knock on the roof, and they were going to knock long enough until they busted a hole through. This is audacious faith. This is risk. How would they not know Jesus wouldn't be ticked that they just put a hole in his roof? How many of you would be ticked if somebody put a hole in your roof? Yeah, some of you are lying. Chris, I see you back there. You're honest. This is audacious faith. We learn about the nature of faith from this account. Faith is not sitting around like the scribes and the Pharisees and the onlookers, listening to Christ and making wise and calculated, rational-sounding speculations. 
How can he say this? How can he do that? Will he prove himself to us? This doesn't square with my opinion of the Old Testament law. Maybe he'll do something to prove that he has the power that he's, he's teaching. Faith is displayed by men who pursue Christ in the belief that he can help. That is faith, pursuing Christ with the absolute, flat-out, unbeatable belief that he can help you in your situation. Faith is no mere fancy of the heart. True faith is not encapsulated in just saying a sinner's prayer. Faith is not just an affectionate feeling. And though it may be conceived in the heart, it's always married to action. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are all action words. The pursuit of Christ wasn't mental 2,000 years ago. It's not, it's not a mental thing today. The nature of faith is that it acts, it's visible. Verse 1, first, Jesus saw their faith. Now we are going to switch emphases in the same sentence. We're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Um, we're going to look at another word. Second, Jesus saw their faith. So the first, we're thinking about what he saw. Second, the fact it's their faith. Seeing their faith, Jesus says to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is a miraculous statement. The scribes are flabbergasted and they start reasoning in their hearts. What are we to make of it? Did Jesus really forgive the sins of this paralytic because of the faith of the friends? And in a way, we say, yes, he did. Jesus forgave the paralytic because of the faith of those that brought him. And I just want that to sit on us just for a minute. I want us to consider that reality. Think about the plain meaning of the story as it is recounted for us. If it wasn't for Jesus' friends, or rather the paralytic's friends, picking, up, picking him up and hauling him across town, he wouldn't have met Jesus Uh, His faith wouldn't have been displayed. He wouldn't have been forgiven. He wouldn't have been healed. Now, am I saying that the paralytic didn't need faith of his own? I mean, that's the question that probably many of us are thinking. And the answer, of of course, to that is, is no. Am I saying that it was actually surrogate faith that led this man's sins to be forgiven? Can, Can I do something that can forgive somebody else's sins? Well, no, that the scripture plainly teaches against that. But we must consider Jesus' own words when he says, seeing their faith, plural. Not seeing the man's faith, he's surveying all of them, seeing their faith. And we must consider how far we derive advantage from the faith of others. We have to consider what extent we are helped, we are blessed in our lives by others' faith. Think about Abraham. What advantage was Abraham's faith to those that followed after him? Did Abraham's faith impact, in a real way, his descendants? Of course it did. In a way, we could say that we are Christians today because of the faith of Abraham. For those of us that come from generations of fathers and mothers that love the Lord, we look back and, of course, we say, when we talk about how God worked in our life, we We can't help but see the faith of others. Consider how great the blessing of Abraham's faith was on successive generations for millennia. This is Genesis. Abraham was 99, and the Lord appeared to him, and he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God told Abraham, walk before me, be blameless. And he says, I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. Nations take time. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, everlasting, to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Today, we hold the belief here that the grace of God is extended to our children and our grandchildren, even before they're born. Our faith isn't a substitute for their own faith, but God bestows such immense grace and favor and blessing on the children of the faithful, on the children of the righteous. True faith is always a source of blessing to those that are around it. We see this in other ways. I mean, in the New Testament, Paul's speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says that a wife, a woman, who has an unbelieving husband, and if he consents to live with her, must not send her husband away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. And the unbelieving wife, in turn, is, is sanctified through her believing husband, if it's the other way around. The faith of the one who believes has an impact on the other who does not believe. It's also beyond all question that earthly blessings are often, for the sake of the godly, bestowed on unbelievers. And I, I think about the, the business owners in this church, the small business owners. And we are coming through a time that has really been hard especially on small business owners, not, the, not necessarily the places you would frequent, although it, it has affected restaurants, but business-to-business commerce has been really wrecked over the past few months. And there's been a lot of Christian men on their knees praying for the sake of their companies. And we have to know that God's faithfulness to, to these men is a source of blessing to all those that work underneath them. I said a few weeks ago that I just finished a book on William Carey, and one of the things that he did that received so much, like, um, sort of um, lashback or whatever that, he received a lot of scorn from Britain because of it, was the fact that uh, he opened a school, and it was free, and you didn't have to be a Christian to go there because he wanted Hindu children to be under Christian teaching, and he thought that education was important for, for all, not just for some. And that school, the, 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 the funding for that school was like this, and you know, he, was, he had to hit the ground on his knees asking God to provide, asking God to be faithful to him in the school that he started. And in turn, God was faithful and blessed all these young men and women, whether or not they were Christians or not. God is always blessing those who live around and operate around faith. Obviously, we can think of prayer, faith in Christ, through prayer. Faith is is a source of blessing and protection and provision and salvation. And in all these ways, it's clear that one can be blessed and benefited from someone else's faith. With regard to our passage, though the paralytic could not have obtained forgiveness of his sins, if he had no faith, we are not to disregard or to sweep over the amazing fact that these friends and their faith land him at the feet of Jesus. That is an an important fact that we cannot just sweep over. We can't diminish the reality of what's clearly stated, that Jesus saw their faith. And without them saying a word, 
We aren't told they said anything to Christ. He forgives this man's sin. It's an incredible story. And I want to spend the remainder of our time considering two questions based off of what we've already talked about. The first is this. Do you realize the importance of your friendships? Or to ask it in a slightly different way, do you understand the effect that friendships have on your life? Remember in the paralytic story, the faith of his friends has had life-changing implications on him personally. Now, we, if we think about friendship, if we think about relationship, uh, we know that it is at the heart of human existence, and here's why. Because it has eternally existed in the Trinity. Before the world was made, before the universes were, were painted by God into the skies, relationship existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who have been, and their relationship with each other is perfect love. This is the archetypal relationship that all of our friendship and relationship is based on top of. And we have a desire for it. It's woven into us. We see many such friendships in Scripture. David and Jonathan, Moses, Aaron, they were related, but they were still friends. And that is a miracle in and of itself for some, right? The 12 disciples, Jesus and Lazarus, Jesus and many different women that we're, t- we're told about over the Gospels. Elijah and Elisha, Joshua and Caleb, Paul with the, you read Philippians and you, you can't but be convinced that Paul was personally friends with many of the people that he's speaking to in that book and the way that he speaks about them. Paul and others, Timothy, Titus. In John 15, Jesus even says, no longer do I call you slaves, but friends. So friendship is vital. But to stop there is to fall short. It isn't just enough to have friendship. We must have faithful friendships, friendships that have Christ and faith at the center of them. And that doesn't mean that they're always friendships with other believers. It means that these friendships are to inspire and spur on love. It means that these friendships are to point us to Christ in our time of need. Friendships that take us before the Lord in prayer. Friendships that are modeled on the fruit of the Spirit. Friendships like our paralytic had. We must seek out and cultivate the right sort of friendships. Remember, James warns that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so having friends is not enough. We must have friends like this paralytic, faithful friends. Remember the Apostle Paul's warning to the church in Corinth. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Apparently, there were those in the church that were giving ear to the wrong sorts of friends. Friends that were not encouraging faith. Friends that were not pointing me to Jesus Christ. Friends that denied the reality of the resurrection. Perhaps they were rubbing shoulders with the Sadducees. Paul warns them about this. He speaks to the power and the influence that our friendships have. Listen, we all need friendship. There is nothing in the New Testament that paints Christianity in solitary colors. Generally speaking, real relationships, um, I do believe, are getting a little bit harder and harder to find. Um, I've read a, a number of articles, whatever it may be, Whatever may be the cause, I don't know if you'd say it's due to more and more of a culture that interacts digitally. And you know, 
what interacting digitally is like. Many of us have had to do it a lot over the last few months. Or whether you, you, you might base this, this, uh, this theory in a culture where it's growing more and more self-centered and inward. Uh, real relationships are, I believe, harder to find or to come across today than they've ever been. I've just read article after article for the past five or six years pointing back and to different things, pointing out to the reality that less and less people have a real friendships, real people that they would say are absolutely close to them. I'm not talking necessarily about superficial friendships or distant, you know, your Facebook friends. Um, but I think many of us can, can see this reality. So we need friendship. Um, and in a culture where this may be becoming more scarce, uh, we have on, to add on top of it now uh, the fact that we are four months into a set of circumstances where we've been asked to shelter in place and not leave our homes. I was just talking from, with uh, Jonathan and Tuani from Brazil. They're, they're from Brazil living in Bowling Green, and they were introduced to our church through the Macers. And um, I was asking him what it's like in Brazil, and they are still on lockdown. Nobody's, nobody's leaving their homes in Brazil, and so it's even worse there. But this is the circumstances we've been under here. And... I'm not saying that Governor Mike DeWine is seeking to weaken friendship, but what I am saying is that these circumstances, as they are being placed on us over time, does pose a threat to the quality and the substance of our friendships. Fear can keep us from interaction and from conversation, or we can fall out of the practice of hospitality, and over time, over time, listen, over time, we can grow inward without recognizing it. And we have to be on guard against this. In this passage, we see the necessity of godly friendship. We need godly friendships. We need faithful men and women that will stand by our sides and point us to Jesus Christ. And we can't lose, we can't lose this being a, a very, very, very um, central thing to each one of us, despite the circumstances we're in. An obvious application of our passage is the importance of faithful friends, the way they impact our lives for our good and to the glory of God. Here's the point. You need to have friendships, they need to be the right sort. The second question that I want us to consider is this. Who is your faith carrying? So we've just spent a few moments highlighting the necessity of friendship as it is good for us primarily. And now I want us to to switch vantage points, I want us to walk around to the other side and look at this sort of the same story from the other side. Who is your faith carrying? We've been confronted with a powerful faith this morning, the kind of faith that led desperate men to tear a hole in the roof to get an audience with Jesus that he might heal their friend. Who are we carrying? We talked about already the effect that our faith should have on those around us. A few chapters back, Jesus says that our faith is light. He compares faith and light. And he says that you are going to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And the analogy of light is helpful to us. The very essence of light is effectual. Light allows you to see what was once darkened. And then it goes beyond just illumination Sunlight provides warmth, and in turn, it causes growth and so forth. 
uh, light affects things. Faith affects things. Faith is like sunlight. Its existence should be seen and felt by others, by those around us. Whose faith, who is your faith carrying? Faith and belief are powerful things. And throughout history, we can see men and women that were Christian or not, but had an unyielding belief or faith in some cause or ideal that was worth their pursuit and their devotion. A few weeks ago, Ali and I found ourselves at home, uh, very tired after the kids were in bed, and so we thought, hey, well, we'll see about if there's any good movies that we could watch, and we ended up picking a movie that was on Harriet Tubman. I don't remember the name of it. Um, but it was an intriguing story. I didn't know much about her uh, before that. But Harriet Tubman, the, the essence of, of her, the, 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 the short of her story is that she was a slave living um, some miles below the line between the North and the South. And uh, whoever was the, the owner of that plantation had told her grandparents that his children would be freed and he didn't make good on his word. And, and so she decided she was going to run away. She said she'd rather die trying to get her freedom than live the way she was living. And the, the movie basically recounts the story of her on this seemingly impossible um, escape route up to the north. And she makes it. And, and she's not happy once she gets up to New York because... Um, she, all her friends and a lot of her family are still back down there. And so the, the, the movie is highlighting basically this journey and multiple journeys where she goes back down and smuggles back up um, slaves from the south across the border into the north. And that's sort of how she spent the, the, the rest of her life, or that's what she's known for. And the, the reason that that came to my mind is that she had a faith that brought others to freedom when those very people didn't, didn't have the faith to believe it themselves. They were sort of deciding to go with her when she would go back down. They would go with her, not based off of their own faith and ability to do it, because they were still down there. It was based off of her and the, and the absolute faith she had that, that this could be done. There are many stories like this. I'm, you know, another would be like Winston Churchill, right? World War II, uh, things aren't going well. And, and many people will attribute Churchill with pulling Britain through the war to victory just by his unyielding belief that they could win. You've heard his, his statements, right, when he says, we will fight in the trenches, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight here, there, and he ends that statement. He starts it by saying, we shall go on to the end, and he ends it by saying, we shall never surrender. His faith and his belief in the war effort inspired Britain to victory. It inspired hundreds and thousands of soldiers under him. You think about the impact of these people and the the, the things that they, they sort of wrought on the societies in which they lived. And it's clear that faith in justice, faith in, in victory, triumph over, over evil is a force. There's great power in their faith. Their unyielding belief drove them to accomplish great things by human standards. But for as powerful or inspiring as these stories are, they do not compare to the power of faith in Jesus Christ. Churchill believed in the power of the British Armed Forces. There are others in his time and since that time that have believed in the necessity and the power that medical advancement is going to have on the world 
over the suffering of people that may be paralytics. And so we've developed prosthetics and we've developed new uh, forms of medical, um, physical therapy. And there may be people in the future that are, don't have mobility of a limb that have mobility in a limb now. But you know what? Jesus has the power to heal the body and to heal the soul. Seeing their faith, he looked at the man and said, your sins are forgiven. He has the ability to cut to the very essence of the problem and not just deal with the effects of sin in our world because generally speaking, it was the effect of sin that did lead this man to be immobile. But he has the ability to deal with that and to keep driving past it. He has the ability to deal with sin itself. And when we come to him in faith, he works. Earlier I was speaking about the advantages that can be derived or obtained from others' faith. And I mentioned how the grace of God is extended to our children. So in baptism, our children, when we baptize them, that act is coming out of this belief that this is what the Scripture is teaching. And in one sense, this stands apart from anything that I do. I believe that God is faithful to my children. If something were to happen to one of Ali and my children, I believe that wherever they'd go, even if we weren't able to be physically present with them, that God would be faithful to them and care for them. And that would be my hope because of what God's word has said. But in another sense, we still have to raise our children. And in fact, in fact, in fact, our faith in Jesus and in his word is what drives us to raise our children in the fear of God. Our faith is what compels us to teach them and to counsel them. Our faith in Jesus is what propels us to pray for them, for their salvation, for their children's salvation, for their spouse's salvation. As parents, we are constantly trying to carry our children before the Lord. Remember, Jesus saw their faith. The inner belief of faith cannot be separated from the actions that faith inspires. I've asked you, who are you carrying? Who are you seeking to lead to Christ? Who are you praying on behalf of? Do you have any paralytics in your life? And listen here. We should be praying for many. One of the things I want to, and I'm not demeaning prayer here. Prayer is of the essence. Prayer is, is, is us calling for God's power to come down. But one of the other things that I, I want to point out is that, you know, whether it's Harry Tubman or Churchill or these men that literally tear up this roof, there's risk involved. Faith, there's no faith where isn't, there isn't risk. And so, yes, we can carry other people by faith through prayer, but we have to be risking things. What are you risking as you seek to carry people to Christ in faith? What are you risking? Are you making sacrifices are you going out on a limb? Are you climbing up a set of stairs holding one corner of a bed where a man is lying on it? What are you risking? When I think about carrying someone else by faith, um, I think one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture of this is actually Job, and it is with his children, but it speaks to the, the, the nature of his character. Job's, we're told that Job's sons used to go and hold feasts in the house um, of each one in his day 
and they would send and invite their three sisters to come and eat and drink with them. And when the days of fasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them. Rising up early in the morning, he'd offer burnt offerings and according to the number of all of them. Why? Job said, perhaps my sons may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then it says, thus Job did continually. This is a man, this is a father who's carrying his family before the Lord. This is a man who will be willing to carry his neighbors before the Lord. This is the type of man that you and I need to emulate. May God make this the reality of our lives. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would come quickly. Father, we pray that while you tarry, while you cause your church to be purified here in this life, we pray that our faith would be built, that it wouldn't be diminished. Father, we know that your word says the gates of hell won't stand against the church, but we also know that we are so often weak. And Father, we pray, I pray, that you would make us people of faith and power, not in ourselves, but because we look to you and we see in you a great Savior, a great power, the Lord of the universe, our God. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.